Hey everyone, Paul here. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I also want to, right from the get-go, give an extra special thank you to those of you who reached out to me on Patreon or direct messaged me over the last couple of weeks after I posted a little bit of update on where I'm at with the work I'm doing on this podcast and YouTube and everything else going on in my life and acknowledging that I needed to turn the dial back just a little bit. Um, the goal of getting to weekly episodes is not currently on the top of my to-do list, and you can certainly read about all of the reasons why on my Patreon page. Uh, it's all good. It's all wonderful. We change. We evolve. Our attention is limited, and so we can only give our attention to so much. So I'm trying to focus more on providing with the attention I am giving this podcast simply the the best things that I feel like I can afford to share with all of you, not only lectures or in today's case, a sermon, um, but also continuing to have conversations with people that are also exploring the intersection of theology and meaning making. Uh, we're going to continue to do this stuff. I just wanted to set expectations so that no one came in thinking, boy, I'm, I'm looking for something every single Monday or Tuesday like we've had in the past. That's not going to be feasible at this juncture of life. Maybe that changes again in the future. But again, you can read all the reasons and my, my whole backstory and my thought process about that on my Patreon page. Today's episode is actually a sermon. Um, I don't post many sermons here. It's just a very different format of communication. And oftentimes sermons contain a lot of in-house conversation to the people that are specifically in your community. But um, this sermon, I think, has broad applicability to any of you who have wrestled with questions about meaning and perhaps have wrestled with the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, Ecclesiastes is actually one of my favorite books, even though it can be perplexing, it can be challenging, it can be a very confusing book. It's a book that we have talked about before on the podcast. I do incorporate some of the insights I've shared before, the points of connection between cognitive science, the cognitive science of meaning, and the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll certainly hear that stuff in this sermon as well. But um, for me, it's, I think, one of the more important books of the scripture, in the scriptures as we go through this meaning crisis in the West. And um, so I hope that you find today's sermon helpful. I'm going to straight from the get-go go ahead and just acknowledge those on my um, Patreon page who are supporting at that theology to a one level or higher so that by the time you get to the end of the sermon, you don't necessarily have to have a, an awkward break where you hear um, those acknowledgments because we do end with worship and prayer at the end of the sermon. So I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Eli, Elise, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Michael Peterson, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam, Sarah R., Sean C., and Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support, for helping me make sure that I can continue to do this podcast in any capacity, and that I can do it without advertisement. Again, today's episode is also available. You can see this uh, video of the sermon on my YouTube page. You can check that out in the link provided as well. I hope you find today's sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes meaningful and helpful. I'd love to hear from you in the discussion forum on Patreon, or certainly you can reach out to me on Twitter, on Instagram as well if you have thoughts. 
I want to start this morning by uh, doing a little experiment. There are waivers in the bulletin. No, I'm just joking. You don't have to sign any waivers for this experiment. You might want to still have your bulletin handy because in it, there's some places to take notes, as well as at the end of the sermon today, we're going to take some time to do a little bit of what we might call like a journaling response here. So we're going to do a little scientific experiment. Uh, again, you don't need to sign off any waivers. This is something that you actually did back in preschool or kindergarten, so no one's going to be harmed as we do this experiment together, all right? We're going to solve a few pattern recognition problems, take you back to preschool and kindergarten here, okay? We're going to put a couple up and see how you do, all right? Let's start with this first one here, okay? This is, this is a basic, you know, maybe this is bringing you back to grape juice and orange slices and markers. The nice smelling markers, I loved those as a kid. The ones that smelled, oh, those were great. Okay, so you got some shapes available at the top. Now we need to fill in the blank here with the most appropriate shape that best solves this problem. Who's got it? Just go ahead and say it out if you know it. Green circle, very, very good, very good. Okay, let's do another one. This one's a little bit trickier, all right? A little bit trickier. What shape comes next after the vertical rectangle? The square. Oh, sir. Good try. Good try. That's all right. That's what I would have said, too. Yep, it's a rectangle. Very good. Okay, now we're going to do another one here, and this one's a bit trickier, a bit more advanced. Okay, got to fill in the blank on this one. I'll give you a, more, a little more time because it's a little bit trickier. Anyone got a solution for this one? You're, you're combing over it really, really hard, right? Anybody see one? Okay. We could sit here all day, and you wouldn't be able to figure this one out. Because there is no solution to this one. It's not a coherent pattern. All I did for this last slide is I just smashed on my keyboard. Okay? So that blank in there, you were not going to be able to solve this problem because there isn't a coherent pattern. There's no discernible pattern here. You might say this problem was meaningless. But what happens when you look around the world and you're searching for some sort of coherent pattern to life and you struggle to find any? Well, if you've ever done that, you might be able to relate to the author of Ecclesiastes, who's simply known as the teacher we're going to start today, uh, we're going to spend our time in the book of Ecclesiastes. I know a book that you've heard tons of sermons on before, probably not. You don't hear too many like Christian songs of taking lines from Ecclesiastes, right? I mean, can you just imagine that? It's like positive, encouraging KTAS. This next song is called Everything is Meaningless by Casting Crowns, right? <laughs> Doesn't quite have a good ring to it. All right, Ecclesiastes 1-2. If you want to open up your Bibles to Ecclesiastes the book of Ecclesiastes, you can do that. If not, that's okay. We'll have the, the relevant passages on the screen. We're trying to do some book summaries throughout this summer sermon series. Ecclesiastes 1-2. We're going to start you off with a real positive and encouraging Bible verse. Your life verse right here, right? Probably not. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is Meaningless. As humans, we are natural pattern hunters. When we speak, 
I mean, you guys are picking up, hopefully, on what I'm saying because you're picking up on the pattern of the English language. When we read, we're discerning patterns. When we do math, we're figuring out patterns. When we're doing science, we're looking for patterns. This is why behavioral scientists in the last decade in some pretty groundbreaking research, we're able to identify three pillars that undergird our sense of meaning, that life has meaning. These three pillars, the first one, is what we can call coherence. Coherence refers to our ability to comprehend life via predictable and recognizable patterns, like those pattern recognition tests that we did. If we can't figure out a repeatable pattern, it's impossible to support the other two pillars of meaning, which are purpose. Purpose refers to this sense that life has an overarching goal to it. And then the final pillar is significance. Significance refers to, do I play as an individual any role in life's overarching purpose? But the problem is, if you can't find a coherent pattern, if you look around the world, you look at your life and you go, I can't figure it out, then you are, it's impossible to figure out whether or not there's a purpose to life or if you have any significance in this life. In fact, our bodies are actually hardwired to pursue goals that we think have meaning. We have these two systems in our body, the dopaminergic system, and the serotonergic system. Maybe some of you have heard about getting a dopamine hit, right? You get that thrill on a roller coaster, or you take a bite of chocolate cake, and you just go, oh, that's, that's wonderful, right? You get a dopamine hit. We have these systems in our body that actually, if we go without pursuing goals, we feel really empty. So what happens when we look around the world and we can't find a pattern that makes any sense? And if we can't figure out if there's a pattern that makes sense, then we sure can't figure out what life's purpose is. And if there's no coherent pattern and purpose, then you and I feel pretty insignificant. What's the point of life at all? And this is the problem that the author of Ecclesiastes, who simply referred to, refers to himself as the teacher, is wrestling with. He is wrestling with the problem of coherence. You see, most of the ancient world that Israel was surrounded in and lived in All of their neighbors believed that the world ran on something that some Old Testament scholars called the retribution principle. So it doesn't matter whether or not you were an ancient Canaanite, a Babylonian, a Greek, Egyptian, whoever. You know, you live in an ancient agrarian world. You plant seeds in the ground. You water them. You get some sunlight. What happens? They grow, right? So most most of the ancient world thought all of the world must operate like this. Sowing and reaping, sometimes we might call it today to borrow from another, uh, the Hindu tradition, uh, karma, right? That might be a more popular term today. So Israel is constantly wrestling with the nature of their covenant with God. How is it similar and how is it different than the way our neighbors think about their relationship with God? Because all of the neighboring religions around ancient Israel, they all felt like, hey, we've got our gods If we fulfill the God's expectations of us, we get blessed. If we don't, there's punishment or curses. And Israel is surrounded by this, and they're trying to figure out, well, how does God govern the world? 
How does the one true God do this? And how is this similar and different than what our neighbors believe? This question gets really, really tricky for Israel around the 6th century. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of about 586 BC, the Babylonians come to town. They storm the city of Jerusalem. They burn it to the ground. They kill an untold number of people, and then they haul off the remaining survivors into captivity. And it's possible, we don't know for certain, but it's likely that this book, along with some of the other difficult wisdom books like Job, were composed somewhere around this time. When the people of God were wrestling with questions like, well, I thought we had this special deal with God, this special covenant with God. Did we do something wrong? And of course, there's certainly plenty of evidence in Israel's history books and in the prophets that like, yeah, Israel did a lot of things wrong. But that doesn't really help you as an individual if like maybe your whole life you're like, I followed the Torah. I never worshiped idols, and yet here I am sitting on the shores of Babylon. How is this right? Not everybody in Israel worshiped idols. Why did terrible things still happen to them? And I mean, what is the point of serving God, trying to live a righteous life, if some terrible calamity might hit me the same way it hits my neighbor, who might be the most unrighteous person I know? Or even worse, what if that really, really wicked person I know ends up being like really, really successful and prosperous? That's a problem. It's a problem all people everywhere have long wrestled with. Why do bad things happen to good people? And why do good things happen to bad people? Doesn't it seem pretty random sometimes? Sometimes it seems random. We can't figure out the solution. So maybe this whole retribution principle thing doesn't work. And this is where we get into the wisdom books of the Old Testament, of which Ecclesiastes is situated in. We can look at some of the surrounding books, the poetry books and the wisdom books surrounding Ecclesiastes, and we see this multifaceted dialogue, these multifaceted perspectives on whether this retribution principle thing or karma really works or if God governs the world differently than the way Israel's pagan neighbors think. So let's consider some of these poetry and wisdom books surrounding uh, the book of Ecclesiastes and see how they contribute in their own unique way to this dialogue about, well, does the world really work like this or not? Psalms, okay? If you've ever read through the, the book of Psalms, these collection of songs, it seems like in much of the Psalms, that the psalmists are saying, hey, you know what? This is a pretty coherent pattern. God seems to govern the world according to the retribution principle. Right? How many times have we either heard a psalm that we've actually recited in church or you've read before? And it, it goes something like this, right? King David says something like, God, I'm righteous. All of these unrighteous people are trying to kill me. Life isn't going good right now. But hey, I know you're going to swoop in and save the day, kill off my enemies who are plotting against me, right? What is David relying on? He's relying on, in some sense, well, it seems like this retribution thing works. Good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Or you could go into the book of Proverbs, another wisdom book. You know, maybe some of you have done like the Proverbs a day thing. Everybody ever done that before? You read one chapter of Proverbs every day? That's a good thing to do, right? 
Much of the book of Proverbs seems to have all these nuggets of wisdom that point to like the retribution principle seems like it works. Think about how many Proverbs are like, you know, if you want to know the wise way to live, work hard, save your money, don't be lazy, don't act dumb or crazy. One of my favorites from youth group was marry a Proverbs 31 woman. That was a big one in youth group, right? That Proverbs 31 woman. It seems like much of the wisdom of Proverbs could be summarized like this. In order to secure a better future, you need to sacrifice some of your present. And guess what? If you actually follow the wisdom of Proverbs, you sacrifice the easy comforts right in front of you, you sacrifice those pleasures right in front of you for your future, you're going to have a higher likelihood of minimizing suffering. And you're going to have a higher likelihood of minimizing dysfunction in your life than if you don't follow the wisdom of Proverbs. But here's where we have this multifaceted dialogue, this more complete picture in all of the wisdom books. Because the question then becomes, well, does that mean that the retribution principle works 100% of the time? If you always sacrifice your present, will that guarantee that you automatically get a better future? Does working hard, eating right, saving your money, not partying your life away, does serving the Lord guarantee that your life is going to be perfect? And all of you already know the answer to that one if you've lived enough life. We know from experience that's not true. It doesn't always work like that. And that's where these other wisdom books, some of them we like to steer clear of because they seem like sometimes hard or depressing. Books like Job and Ecclesiastes step in and they go, hey, hang on, hang on, wait a second. This doesn't work 100% of the time. The retribution principle doesn't govern the world. Karma does not run the world. And I'd love to talk about Job some other time. We can't do that today. We're going to zero in on Ecclesiastes. One of the things I encourage you to do this week is I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you, actually, every week that we do these kind of difficult books, try to read through that whole book in one sitting if you can. If not, read it throughout the week. And if you read through Ecclesiastes, you start to see that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is focused on highlighting what we might call statistical irregularities with this retribution principle. He's searching for coherent patterns to life, and he's looking around, and he finds that the retribution principle doesn't work 100% of the time. And that's a problem. If that doesn't work, if I don't always reap what I sow, then what does work? Is there a different pattern? Is there any meaning to be found in life at all? And it's this threat of an incoherent universe that the teacher of Ecclesiastes is tackling. It's a threat we all come face to face with at some point in our life. Let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 14, as just one example. Again, I'll have it on the screen for you. For those that are watching online, it'll come up on the screen for you as well. If you can't thumb through all of these verses in your Bible, Ecclesiastes 8, 14. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. Let's be honest. 
We've all had this thought once in our lives, haven't we? We've all looked around and said, how's that guy so rich? Why are things going really, really well for them? Or we hear some tragedy befall, maybe even someone in our own church community, and you looked at their life and you went, they did everything right. Maybe not everything, but why them? It's frustrating. If good behavior and reward don't always correlate, then what's the point to living right? What's the point of sacrificing my now, delaying gratification, doing the hard right thing if all this wise, righteous living doesn't guarantee me a better future than the wicked? And if this isn't the pattern, then can somebody please show me the way so that I can get at least some kind of map to figure out how I should live in the world? Because this math isn't adding up. Behavior X should produce result X in the world. If two plus two equals four today and then tomorrow it equals nine, that's not coherent. It's a problem for the trustworthiness of math. So maybe we see the teacher of Ecclesiastes working through these thought experiments and problems. Well, maybe life is just random and chaotic. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's no pattern. Maybe there's no purpose. Maybe... There's nothing behind it at all. If that's the case, if there's no purpose, well, then what should I do with my life? Maybe I should just try a bunch of things that might at least give me the sensation of pleasure, give me that quick dopamine hit. What if I sacrifice all of my future for right now? Just party it up. Pursue immediate gratification, wealth, status, Maybe that's just a better way to live. Well, this is where the wisdom of the teacher of Ecclesiastes comes in, because he's tried that too. You can read chapter 2. We won't read all of it, but I want to read some of it here together. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, so you might have to thumb back a few pages here. Starting off at verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. Jump down to verse 10 for the sake of time here, where the teacher sums up his pursuit of pleasure. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. That experiment didn't sound like it worked out too well. The pursuit of immediate pleasure and sacrificing all of your future for whatever gives you that temporary dopamine hit doesn't give your life any more meaning. So we could say that in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher successfully deconstructs two ways that people look for meaning in life, and he calls them both meaningless or empty. 
So these are the two things. So first of all, the teacher, sometimes Ecclesiastes seems negative because it is kind of negative. He's critiquing, he's deconstructing, he's getting at some things that might be idols in our lives. Here's the first one that he critiques and deconstructs, a common way that people try to find meaning in life. First one, trying to control your future by sacrificing everything you have right now is wasting the life God has gifted you with. Now, some of you, you need a healthy dose of Proverbs. And what was the wisdom of Proverbs? You better sacrifice some of your now for your future, right? And it seems like lots of times we hear messages like that in church, that the wise way of following the will of God is like delay gratification, serve, serve, serve. But for some of you, I'm not going to name any names, but for some of you, you need a healthy dose of this wisdom from the teacher of Ecclesiastes. You know what? Don't sacrifice all of your nows for a future that may never come. Don't give up. I mean, I've heard, and there's, there's some balance here. There's some wisdom here. There's a lot of good, like, financial teachers um, that teach in church settings, and they give a lot of wise Proverbs-like financial advice. But I've heard some things before that make me go, I don't know if you've read Ecclesiastes. Um, I heard one guy say one time that he told this couple, this married couple, they wanted to go out for their anniversary dinner. And he asked them, well, do you have any credit card debt? Right? And he told them, the only way you should ever step foot in a restaurant is if you're working there until you get all your debt paid. Certainly one way to live. You know. I don't know if the teacher of Ecclesiastes would say, I, I don't know if I agree with that. If you sacrifice everything you have in front of you right now for some future, that future might not come. And typically, we do that as a way to try to control the future. But we can't control all the future. We can influence it. We can affect it. So there's a ditch on that side, but there's also another ditch. The second ditch that the author of Ecclesiastes deconstructs is this idea that all we need to do instead would be sacrifice all of your future, which typically means the lives of people around you too, to get every ounce of pleasure, fame, or fortune right now. Doing that is wasting the life God has gifted you with. So we have these two ditches. What are we left with then? What is the path of wisdom? So he's deconstructed these things. Does the author of Ecclesiastes offer us anything positive, like a positive path forward, a coherent pattern that could give us a sense that, hey, you know, you should live in the world instead of these ways, you should live in the world this way. Whether you're an ancient Israelite and you're reading this in captivity in Babylon and you're, you're wondering why you're sitting there broke, pretty much a slave of some foreign power, while this wicked Nebuchadnezzar lives in luxury, or you're a 21st century American just trying to figure out a better way than the other pursuits you've tried that have left you feeling empty. The teacher of Ecclesiastes does have some positive wisdom to offer any of you who sometimes struggle to find meaning in what sometimes feels like an incoherent world. So here's some nuggets of wisdom from the teacher what positive wisdom does the teacher of Ecclesiastes offer who's for those who are wrestling to find meaning in the world? Here's the first one. 
Though the retribution principle doesn't work 100% of the time, the teacher affirms that the world is not completely chaotic and random. There are seasons for everything. Sometimes it's a season of joy. Sometimes it's a season of sorrow. Some of you know that old song, for everything, turn, turn, turn. There's a season, you know. We probably could use some writers in the church to write songs like that, too, from time to time. There's a time to plant. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Read that one on your own sometime. A time to plant, a time to pick up what is planted. Think about this, guys. Every, talk about, I'm thinking about anniversaries because mine is coming up here. I didn't forget, honey. I don't know if you're in the back or not. So think about, you know, if you're married, that nice anniversary meal that you had. Something died to give you that meal. Even if you're a vegetarian, you know, some plant got picked up, right? Pulled out of the ground. That steak that you had. Sorry to offend any vegans or vegetarians out there. That's, that's, my, that's my vice of choice. It's a nice medium rare steak. Something died to give you that beautiful moment. There are seasons of life and death. The entire life cycle of our planet that God created and said it was good revolves around seasons of life, decay, and death. We worship a crucified Savior And sometimes I feel as if, as Christians, we only want the positive and encouraging. And we don't like dealing with the suffering. We don't like dealing with the pain or discomfort or lament or sorrow. But the teacher of Ecclesiastes says this is part of life. Both joy and lament are part of the Christian life. And we need to think about this because we don't really want a world where everyone gets what they deserve, do we? Because if karma runs the world, then there's no room for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. We don't want a world. I know there's like a pro and con to that because we might go and be like, hey, you know, I'd really love it if every time I worked hard, I got that reward. But maybe God structured reality in such a way to leave room for mercy, grace, and forgiveness. And in order to do that, the retribution thing, karma, can't work 100% of the time. Because I'm thankful I didn't always get what I deserve. How about you? The second thing that the teacher of Ecclesiastes positively affirms is, do not miss the gift of existence right in front of you. There's a whole lot of goodness all around you. Don't miss it. And and maybe we're feeling that a little bit more as we're kind of coming out of this pandemic and there's these little things like what we're doing this morning. To hear, I, I mean, I got a little... Got a little misty-eyed this morning as we were singing, hearing all of your voices, remembering back to a year ago and just doing this in a room with nobody in here. That's a little gift. I hope we don't ever take it for granted. There are these little gifts of life right in front of us. For me, one of them is the smell of freshly cut grass after I've mowed my yard. It's a little thing. It's a gift from God. I know that seems silly, I'm sure you guys have a silly thing. Emma was saying, where's Emma? Emma was saying for her before uh, while we were, they were rehearsing this morning that for her, it's tuna casserole. 
Good for you, Emma. Sorry, I don't know where she's at. <laughs> little gift. A little gift right around you. Don't miss it. There's lots of God's goodness, and we don't want to overlook it. Here's some examples throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. Pretty simple, right? Chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. Here's another one. This is what I've observed to be good. So not meaningless or empty. This is what I've observed to be good. That it's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of their heart. You know, some of you, if God's given you the ability to have the kind of work that affords you a, you know, a decent living, you don't have to feel bad about that. (laughs) There are wise ways that God calls you to live in the world, and one of them is just to be grateful for the gifts that God's given you. That maybe you could host people over your house for a meal. Maybe you can give a little bit more. Sometimes we come to church and we hear a lot of these Proverbs messages and we want to talk about the sacrifices of the cross. This is really, really true. But it's part of a symphony of wisdom that we also need to recognize that, you know what? Sometimes there's a moment right in front of you. God's given you existence right here and right now to be received with a grateful heart. Here's another one. This doesn't sound as positive, but it actually is a positive affirmation. Chapter 6, verse 4. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now, that's really harsh language. I almost didn't include that one because it's very difficult language and it's hyperbole. And the teacher's trying to make a point. If you've been given this gift of life and you cannot receive it with thankfulness and receive it as a gift from God, you're missing the point of life entirely. To receive a proper burial in the ancient world meant, in a sense, that people were celebrating the goodness of your good life around you. And that, that's, a, that's something that the teacher of Ecclesiastes affirms. Here's one more. I love this one. Chapter 9, verse 7 through 10. Go and eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. You can substitute grape juice in there if you're Baptist, you know. (laughs) Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. In fact, there are six different occasions throughout the book of Ecclesiastes where the teacher deconstructs. This is empty, 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 and then he affirms this is what the good life is like. And in each one of those instances, you can sum up what the message of the teacher of Ecclesiastes is saying by this. Enjoy God's gift of life. 
So what I want to do here in your um, bulletin that you got is I want to leave space because Ecclesiastes is kind of a two-edged sword. It's both a book that leaves us space to practice lament, where we get to look around the world and be like, God, you know what? I'm going to be honest. This doesn't seem fair or right. And we don't want to cut that out. But it's also a book that calls us to thankfulness. And I want to practice both. So in your bulletin that you had, and maybe you didn't grab one, but you could just write this down. For those that are doing this at home, if you didn't you know, go download the printout, that's okay. You can just write this down in a journal. I want to carve out a couple minutes in silence here. For first, first of all, for us to practice some lament. So I want to give you some time right now before the, the team comes up to sing a response song to write down some things that you would say, God, I look around at the world and this doesn't seem right and I'm frustrated. So take a moment now to write some of those things down. God, I'm looking around at this thing in life and it's, this is good. You're not doing something wrong by telling God this. This doesn't seem right and I'm frustrated. Now, I'm not going to ask you guys to share any of this out loud, because some of these laments might be really personal, but what I would encourage you to do sometime, maybe today, with someone that you love, someone that you're close to, is to maybe share some of those things, to give voice to it. God, this doesn't seem right, and I'm frustrated. I'll give you another moment here to maybe finish writing something down. Okay, now the other side of this, though, is that there are a lot of these little gifts right in front of us that we often overlook. And, and Ecclesiastes isn't just about lamenting what's wrong. Ecclesiastes is about a celebration of the gift God has given us right now. Those little things that when we receive them with a grateful heart, we receive them as worship, and we give them back as praise to God. So I want to give you a moment now to write down some things that you want to give God thanks for, especially those things that you overlook, the things that might go unnoticed under your nose day in and day out and say, man, that is a gift. Take a moment to write some of those things down. Now, this certainly isn't enough time this morning to write all of your laments and your praises down, and I would encourage you to keep this thing, go home, carve out some time tonight, this afternoon, to continue this practice. But here's one thing I want to do. We sometimes do this on our Harvest of Praise service. Um, we invite people just to speak out from right where they are at, a simple sentence of giving God thanks for something. And what I'd like to do is just to invite some of you right where you're at 
to share out loud, not necessarily lament, you can keep that with the close personal friends, but to share something that you go, I want to give God thanks for this little thing that maybe I've overlooked. And you can just say it out. We take turns all around the room. We'll get a couple people to be bold enough to maybe take the first step. Who wants to just publicly profess a, a, a thanksgiving to God? Go ahead. Just say it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't. You should tell us, some of us younger people, about some of the things we need to give thanks to God for in that category. New babies. New babies. What a gift. Fresh peaches. Fresh. Yes. I love that. Yeah. Fish casserole on a really hard day. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to hear these things, and we need to take these as a a spiritual discipline that we do regularly. And I see a little bit of sunshine out there, and maybe even some of you after service today can gather at the park and enjoy the gift of God. Have, Have a meal together. Enjoy our company together. So... If you can't make it today, if you feel like it's still a little too sloshy, there'll be future opportunities. I believe we have another picnic coming up in a couple weeks. But I do want to invite you to stand this morning as we wrap up today. We're going to sing the doxology together, and then I'm going to send you out an ascending prayer. Praise God from whom God, we give you thanks for these little gifts in front of us, and it is the work of your spirit to bring up into our, the forefront of our minds these gifts that we overlook. This is our life of worship, to receive these things with a glad heart, the tuna casseroles, the fresh peaches, the freshly cut grass, the time with grandchildren, the conveniences that we have that make our life simpler. These are all a gift from you. And so help us this week to celebrate those things, God, and set us free from the times in which we feel uncomfortable confessing to you that we're frustrated with how things seem to be in this world. May we hold both things together well. So this morning, I pray over everybody here that the Lord would bless you and keep you, that he would make his face to shine on you and to give you his peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.